Ontology, the Waystation of Red-Pilled Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Ginny, Arya and Guy All Bots The Reshaping of the World Order After the First World War Part 8 well, let's go back to the middle of the Korean War. The Korean War was the pinnacle of the Soviet Union's diplomatic victory. It was also the culmination of the Soviet Union's world revolution in Europe and Asia since the Lenin era. In Europe, in the mid-1950s, it had acquired half of the countries in Europe and the Warsaw Pact. In Asia, it brought China and North Korea into its sphere of influence and at the same time it won an extremely advantageous position in Vietnam. The South Vietnamese government was in a very embarrassing situation similar to that of the Chiang Kai-shek government in the 1930s. It could only fight at home. The Communist Party of Vietnam had assistance from the Soviet Union and China, and it could also fight in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. If it lost the battle, it could hide in Cambodia, and the Americans couldn't pursue it there. Once the Americans chased them down to Cambodia, the international community would accuse the U.S. of invading Cambodia. Yet when the Soviet-backed Vietnamese guerrillas invaded Cambodia, everyone pretended not to see it. As you can imagine, in such an unfair war, South Vietnam had no chance to win. But this victorious situation was the last window of opportunity for the Soviet Union. It was brewing the diplomatic revolution of 1972, the Machiavellian diplomatic revolution represented by Nixon's visit to China. The main motivation for this diplomatic revolution happened to be its victory in China, which raised up a potentially rivaling regime with Mao Zedong at its core. One theory by the Soviets was that Mao Zedong represented the ideology of the rich peasants, or that he belonged to the petty bourgeoisie, or the land reformers. These terms are all wrong. But it represents a basic view of the Soviet Union, that is, Mao Zedong and his generals were indeed uncultivated local Chinese without formal training by the Soviet Union and of only dubious organizational loyalty. If the Soviets could manage it, they preferred to work with the more thorough Leninists like Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. In Mao Zedong, the mark and trade of traditional Chinese rebels and emperors were too prominent. He and his group of generals used a method more like the rebels and schemers such as Zhu Yuanzhang or Li Zicheng to gain his power. Of course, if he was purely Zhu Yuanzhang or Li Zicheng, he would necessarily have failed. In the dynamics of the 20th century, without the organizational and industrial power that the Soviet Union provided him, he could at best be a rebel leader. He was also aware of this, so he had no other choice but to rely on the Soviet party state and Leninist machinery. But on the other hand, he represented the traditional Chinese rebel-turned-emperor ideology. The internal conflict between these two elements eventually led to the Cultural Revolution, and the final result was mutual destruction without a winner on either side. In the situation of internecine rivalry, Mao Zedong, as a great Machiavellian politician, that is, a completely immoral person who only cared about interests with a superior pragmatic shrewdness that outperformed everyone else, staged another grand play. 
His invitation to the United States, from his own point of view, was actually the same as chanting Chairman Chang long live. It by no means meant that he truly loved Chairman Chang or the United States. He simply had put on a play. The Cultural Revolution, as I said just now, was launched to eliminate the remnant Soviet influence in China, but it only felled Liu Shaoqi. Deng Xiaoping rose up again. The most important thing is that his own protégés like Wang Hongwen whom Mao Zedong himself groomed were too incompetent and inexperienced to succeed him. According to a popular anecdote, one day in his old age Mao Zedong gathered Deng Xiaoping and Wang Hongwen to his bedside and questioned them what would happen to China after his death. Wang Hongwen replied like an idiot, the Chinese people will definitely stick to the line of Mao Zedong thought, hold high the great banner of Mao Zedong thought, and carry the revolution through to the end. Deng Xiaoping instead took the attitude that you know that I am a smart person, and I also know that you are a smart person, since we both are smart people there is no need to talk in riddles, and straightforwardly answered him, China will be plunged into a civil war. I think that after this conversation Mao Zedong was left without doubt that his protégés like Wang Hongwen in the hands of an old and cunning man like Deng Xiaoping would be as defenseless as a piece of cake placed in front of a famished diner who would devour it with one bite. But he was too old to reverse this situation. Under this circumstance, what was left for him to do? He can only take advantage of his existing power. If he permitted the situation to develop further, after his death, the people he left behind would necessarily be overthrown by the old Leninists in the party, and these old Leninists were most likely to return to the bosom of the Soviet Union. On the one hand, they were pro-Soviet people. On the other hand, they knew nothing but the Soviet planned economy which they would use to govern the country. The governance and rectification carried out by Deng Xiaoping were in essence, to restore the Soviet Union's one-party system and the anarchy of the Cultural Revolution and restore the well-organized planned economy under the leadership of the party committee. Undoubtedly, this approach generated productivity slightly better than that of the Cultural Revolution, but it would never create a market economy. Mao Zedong must have clearly foreseen this situation in the future. In this case, what would his own situation be like? Once the Communist Party of China returned to the pro-Soviet route, it would definitely revitalize the historical narrative of the 1950s. It is common knowledge that Chinese history textbooks are constantly being revised in line with the political situation. The standard textbook in the 1950s read, The Chinese Revolution was victorious under the wise leadership of Marshal Stalin, which is very close to historical facts. However, the textbook was revised after the 1960s, the Chinese Revolution realized the sinicization of Marxism under Mao Zedong's leadership and rejected the Soviet Union's erroneous guidance. Under the Soviet Union's misleading guidance, the Chinese Revolution could not have succeeded. Precisely thanks to Mao Zedong who rejected the wrong supervision of the Soviet Union, so we were able to succeed. Provided that Liu Shaoqi's remnant faction had overthrown the clique built by Mao Zedong after his death, and rerouted the Communist Party of China back to the Soviet's path, then the history textbook would inevitably have experienced a third revision, and would read more or less as such, 
The Chinese Revolution had succeeded under the wise leadership of Marshal Stalin and the Chinese Communist Party, and then fell into failure under the wrong leadership of Mao Zedong, who was a bad element. The central government rectified the mistake by defeating Mao Zedong, a dangerous bad element, and returned to the correct leadership of the Soviet Union. Then Mao Zedong would go down in history as one wrong rotor like Wang Ming and Shen Duxiu, eternally condemned. This scenario must never take place. So he pulled the Americans in. Once China and the United States formed an alliance against the Soviet Union, he put the Communist Party of China in such an awkward situation, an irreconcilable feud had been bred with the Soviets, to go back to the Soviet route was no longer an option. Even if the remnant clique of Deng Xiaoping and Liu Shaoqi were in power again, they would no longer be able to override Mao Zedong's historical standing in the overarching international political context of Sino-US joint opposition against the Soviet Union. Provided that Mao Zedong's historical status were to be repudiated, how should history textbooks be written then? The Soviet Union was right and Mao Zedong was wrong. Yet we continue to follow Mao Zedong's route to oppose the Soviet Union and side with the United States. Wouldn't we be even more wrong? If we are right to unite with the United States against the Soviet Union, then we cannot completely renounce Mao Zedong. We can only acknowledge, all right, Mao Zedong was in general correct, and he was, on the whole, correct in leading us to oppose the Soviet Union's error. Therefore, even though he made the exceptional mistake of persecuting us, he was correct in many things other than that. We can now wipe out Mao Zedong's wife and his protégés, but with regards to Mao Zedong himself, we have to gag our conscience, grit our teeth, and say, forget it, let's admit defeat. In this way, Mao Zedong at least guaranteed his posthumous historical status. As a very cunning man with a deep understanding of imperial court politics, under the desperate circumstances of 1972, I believe, Mao had no better choice. China was in the same situation as Assad and Damascus today, the Soviets wanted him to die, the Americans wanted him to die, his own party comrades wanted him to die, and the people had been tormented by you almost to death, so as soon as he breathed his last, his end would be very terrible and he may even be killed before death. So he had to make a very clever move at that moment, similar to that when he suddenly shouted, Long live Chiang Kai-shek in the early days of the anti-Japanese war. What were the benefits of shouting long live Chiang Kai-shek? In doing so, his rivals in the party like Wang Ming would no longer be able to bring him down. Chiang Kai-shek would give him money and weapons. With this, even if Wang Ming had defeated him, it would only have led to the split of the Communist Party and civil war. It would be impossible to achieve absolute victory. Without Chiang Kai-shek's support, Wang Ming would have been able to knock him out like Chu Chiu-bai. Even if he had died, his death would have been in vain, and the Communist Party would still be in Wang Ming's hand. He couldn't have prevented that from happening. Now the Americans played the role of Chiang Kai-shek in 1972. As long as he had the Americans on his side, the hostile forces within the party would not be able to seize China without splitting the Communist Party and engulfing China in civil war. Under this equilibrium of power, Mao Zedong secured his safety until his last days, 
with his legacy unable to be completely negated by the Communist Party behind him. It was a masterful maneuver in the application of international politics and domestic politics. If you follow the argument of Xin Jihua or the current mainstream historians in the country, you will not be able to see the truth of history. They would say that Mao Zedong was a moron and Chiang Kai-shek was also a moron. Both disregarded China's national interests and caused the people so much suffering and loss. They would solemnly suggest what they should have done and so on and so forth. These are all nonsense. If the political wisdom of Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek was really the same as these renowned historians wish and they had indeed acted according to China's national and people's interests, I can guarantee that they would have become dead long ago. Moreover, after their demise you would read in the history textbooks would elaborate on the sins of the heinous reactionary Chiang Kai-shek and the heinous reactionary Mao Zedong and not a word would be about the wrongs done to them. Such names as Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong would provoke the same spontaneous disgust as when you hear the name of the condemned traitor, Wang Jingwei. That guy is scum, you would respond without thinking. Only an extremely small number of people with access to inside information will know that these so-called historical images are all deliberately fabricated. As real politicians, all they needed was to achieve maximum political success in their lifetime. What they did was completely correct, and they were way smarter than these historians ever could be. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.